You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. Is the human brain truly able to handle the environment that we're in today? We've got information on tap. We've got entertainment on tap. We've got food on tapity tap. There's so much that we have access to. We're living at a time of apparent abundance. But there appears to be a powerful mismatch taking place with our brain, our nervous system, our hormones, our DNA itself, and the environment that we're currently existing in. And the ramifications that we're seeing are epidemics of chronic diseases, mental health diseases, even infectious diseases, strangely enough, have been on the rise. There's something that is not adding up. And today we're going to take a peek behind the curtain and see what's really going on with our scarcity brain. Our guest today is an incredible professor, scientist, researcher, and he's dubbed this term scarcity brain to describe how we're interacting with all these things today and how it's leading to outcomes that we might not necessarily want. So to take back control of our health, of our psychology, of our ability to problem solve, to experience fulfillment, to have the body and the health that we want, understanding the scarcity brain is really the key to getting where we want to be. Now, one thing that we know for certain is that we do not want a scarcity of essential nutrients. So nutrients that are required to build our hormones, to build our neurotransmitters, to regenerate and support our brain cells. The list goes on and on and on. These things are going to be coming from our food. And so, yes, we want to absolutely eat nutrient-dense real foods for the majority of our diets. And today, more than ever, because of all the stress inputs and how our bodies are processing the data that we're being exposed to, we very often need a little bit of a support. That's where the term supplement should come in at. Supplements should not replace an already healthy diet. It should supplement. It should fill in minor gaps. It should help us to be able to go above and beyond so that we're running on all cylinders. Now, we've existed recently in recent generations in the paradigm of the, quote, multi vitamin. And the data is now pointing to the fact that there is a very big difference in synthetic versions of vitamins versus real whole food versions of those same vitamins. Just because the, the chemical equation is the same does not mean that it's impacting our health the same way. Take, for example, essential nutrient vitamin E. This nutrient is important for healthy function of your cardiovascular system, cognitive performance, and even the health of your skin. Well, a study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition determined that natural food-based vitamin E has nearly twice the bioavailability of synthetic vitamin E. So again, the data is now becoming more and more clear. Just because we get a, quote, multivitamin that has these synthetic versions of these essential nutrients does not mean that our cells can actually utilize it. So when we're looking at fortifying our nutrition, providing ourselves with an abundance of essential nutrients, we wanna do this with 
Number one, real whole foods. And number two, real food concentrates, superfood concentrates. This is why I'm such a huge fan of Organifi. Organifi provides organic, whole food-based superfood concentrates. Superfoods like chlorella, for example, which is incredibly rich in chlorophyll, which a study published in the journal Appetite found that chlorophyll can aid in weight loss and reduce the urge to eat hyperpalatable foods. But it also has remarkable micronutrients like lutein and zeaxanthin that helps with our cardiovascular system, with our vision, and much more. These foods go above and beyond with their nutrient density. And on top of that, a double-blind, placebo-controlled study published in the journal Clinical and Experimental Hypertension found that chlorella was able to normalize blood pressure of test subjects with hypertension. So when I'm saying these foods are superfoods, I'm not exaggerating. We're talking about science-backed. We're talking about real. If we're talking about a multivitamin, this is where you need to turn. Whole food concentrates. Organifi's green juice contains chlorella, spirulina, ashwagandha, coconut, and it comes together in this really refreshing beverage that's easy to make, easy to travel with as well. They have these great go packs and providing our families with real whole food based complementary nutrition. Go to Organifi.com forward slash model. You get 20% off their incredible green juice blend. They also have a great red juice formula, gold, highlighting organic turmeric as the foundational ingredient in that formula and so much more. Organifi is doing stuff the right way. Organic, cold processing, organic, whole food-based nutrition at Organifi.com forward slash model. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash model for 20% off store-wide. Now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Amazing Content Delivery by hashtag The Health Coach. I've been listening to Sean for five years now, and I'm ashamed that it's taken me so long to express the gratitude and admiration I have for his dedication and commitment to the well-being of the world. He's by far the most insightful, charismatic, educated, digestible content creator I have ever had the pleasure of learning from. I pray that his work continues and more people are able not only to hear, but listen to the wisdom and compassion shared on each episode. Thanks, Sean. Oh, wow. Thank you. I'm just taking a moment to receive that. That is so powerful. Thank you so much for sharing your voice and sharing your time and energy with me. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And if you yet to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the Model Health Show. It means so much. And now let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Our guest today is Michael Easter, and he's the author of The Comfort Crisis and the new book, Scarcity Brain, Fix Your Craving Mindset and Rewire Your Habits to Thrive with Enough. He's a professor at UNLV, and he writes and speaks on how humans can leverage modern science and evolutionary wisdom to perform better and live healthier lives. His work has been implemented by professional sports teams, elite military units, Fortune 500 companies, and leading universities. Let's jump into this conversation with the incredible Michael Easter. All right, we've got Michael Easter here in the Model Health Show studios, and we got this fascinating new book to talk about, but I wanna ask you a question to get started. Are we too comfortable? Are we too comfortable as a species? 
I, I think a lot of us are for sure. I mean, if you look at the trajectory of how society is designed and how we live now, we've removed a lot of discomfort out of our lives. I mean, think about we live at 72 degrees. Uh, the average person takes 4,000 steps now. We used to take more than 20,000. Um, what else? And boredom. We have an immediate escape from boredom in the form of cell phones, right? We're not as bored anymore. Uh, 80% of eating is driven by reasons other than hunger. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but the long story short is that, you know, humans evolved in these environments that were uncomfortable. They were not easy. And so we evolved to do the next easiest, most comfortable thing. And that kept us alive for all of time. And then, you know, in the last 150 years, we've really engineered our lives to be a lot more comfortable, a lot easier, yet we still have that drive to do the next most comfortable thing. And it often backfires. So it's what anthropologists would call an evolutionary mismatch. Ooh, yeah, definitely. We have that mismatch popping right now. There's, it's kind of like a paradox where we have all of this apparent innovation, and yet we're more kind of dysfunctional than we've been as a species. Like there's more chronic disease, there's more uh, mental health issues, all the things. And, you know, to think about our comfort as being one of the ingredients, because also, you know, I think that we're always seeking it. I think our ancestors were seeking that comfort, but the question is like, once you have it, what do you do? Right, right. I mean, now we live in it, you know? Um, so I consider this a good problem to have in the grand scheme of time and space. Because, you know, the opposite is that you don't have enough food or you have to walk 20,000 20, steps every single day to find food, which, by the way, you may not find it. Um, you're exposed to the elements all the time. Like, I don't want to live like that. But at the same time, now that we've engineered so much comfort uh, into our lives and we still have that drive, we often forget that we often need to do these things that don't really make sense in the grand scheme of time and space, like exercise, like watching what you eat. Like all these mm. things, right? Yeah. All these health practices we do now, they didn't make any damn sense until like a hundred years ago yeah. or less. Yeah, our ancestors were not like, what's in that? When somebody <laughs> passed them some food, you know, it's just like, it's just food. You know, how many macro, what are those macros, you know? And you just said it too, like we're replicating, we're doing simulations of what our ancestors would be doing, right? When we go to the gym, not to downplay the value that that can have, but it's just like, we would just be active. We would just be lifting things and moving more because our life required it. Now that it doesn't require it, and a lot of movement's optional, you know, many of us are seeking out ways to, to develop ourselves, to basically give ourselves the inputs that our genes are expecting of us. Yeah. And so with that mismatch, you know, it's, it's so interesting that today, not only are we in this place, but which your, your first book was The Comfort Crisis, or we experiencing this comfort crisis, we have industries that are leveraging that seek that seeking of comfort and taking advantage of our more sedentary, like we're just looking, our, our, our brain that's, that's averse to boredom is looking for stuff to, to mingle with. And so this new book is blowing my mind. I showed you just one portion that's high, it's, it's, it's just loaded with right now this highlighter ink is all over this book it's oh, so good man I so good and you got me from the first page as well just the story like it starts off with this kind of ominous situation which i'm not going to give it away for people but you were putting yourself in these different positions to really find out what's going on with our biology with our brains in this new world that we're living in and so the title of the new book is scarcity brain 
let's start off by talking about what scarcity brain means. Yeah, well, it's really, you know, why can't people get enough of food, stuff, status, all these things, right? Everyone knows that everything's fine in moderation, and yet we all suck at moderating. <laughs> so why is that? That's really what the book uh, looks into. And I started really thinking about this. Um, so right when the pandemic sort of happened, I'm talking like March, you know, mid-March 2020, when people realizes, realize that things, things they need might become scarce, what did we all do? Everyone freaked out, right? Everyone goes to the grocery store, they start hoarding toilet paper. It's like, I need all the hand sanitizer in the world, all of it, you guys can have none. People are hoarding food. And then after you see that initial reaction to this sort of big scarcity cue that is the pandemic, you start to see people um, lean into more consumption in other ways. So significant amount of people gained weight during the pandemic, right? You had inactivity, you had inactivity rise. So people were less active. Screen time went through the roof. People bought more than we'd ever bought before, like these compulsive purchases, you know, and you're going like, what the hell is up with that? Um, and it really was this uh, moment where moderation sort of went out the window. And um, I just wanted to know why that was. And the book is really an investigation of that. But one of the main things that I think I found that's new and interesting is this idea of uh, what I call the scarcity loop. And um, I discovered this thing in my hometown of Las Vegas <laughs> because I'd made this sort of casual observation that, wow, people play slot machines for hours and hours and hours. It's just this repeat behavior that's seemingly kind of fun and stimulating in the short term, but detrimental in the long run. Like the house always wins. The longer you play the slot machine, the more money you're gonna lose. And it ruins a lot of people's lives. These slot machines are everywhere in Vegas. And um, long story short, and trying to figure out like why the hell do people play slot machines, I end up at a uh, casino on the edge of town in Vegas that uh, it's cutting edge, it's brand new, but it is used entirely for research on human behavior. So it's a legit casino, but filled with PhDs and with study sub subjects basically. And um, that's where I learned about this thing called the scarcity loop from a slot machine designer. And it's a behavior loop that basically, you can think about it as the serial killer of moderation, more or less. Mm -hmm. And it's got these uh, three parts. It's got opportunity, unpredictable rewards, and quick repeatability. So one, you have opportunity, an opportunity to get something of value that can enhance your life. Two, you have unpredictable rewards. So you know if you keep doing the behavior, you'll get the thing of value at some point, but you don't know when, and you don't know how big it's gonna be. And then three, uh, quick repeatability, you can repeat the behavior over and over and over. So think of a slot machine. You got an opportunity to win money. You know if you keep playing, you're gonna win at some point, but you don't know how big the win is gonna be, and you can just keep playing and playing and playing. Now, this lab um, is funded by gambling companies, but it's also funded by a bunch of big tech companies. And so then the question is like, well, why the hell is that, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And um, it turns out that uh, you can put this scarcity loop in a lot of other products too, to compel people to repeat behaviors that are fun, that are stimulating, that give them some sort of relief in the short term, but often lead to long-term problems. So for example, it's what makes social media work. 
It's uh, embedded in dating apps. It's in uh, sports gambling, especially on mobile, the rise of mobile gambling. It's in um, new finance apps like Robinhood. Robinhood really took off by leveraging this loop and it's in all sorts of other um, crazy places today where you tend to see people do things to excess. Ooh, now here's where this really ties in for the Model Health Show is that a big part of this inherent programming that we have as human beings, the scarcity loop can be tied to food. Yeah, It can be tied, evolutionarily speaking, to our seeking of food for survival. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so, okay, I talked to the slot machine designer. He lays this thing out and then, you know, and he goes, you know, by the way, it's it's in a lot of other places than slot machines. It's very powerful. And then once, once I start looking for it, you start to see it everywhere. And I lay out a bunch of places in the book. Um, but a question that he couldn't answer for me is, I go, okay, great. I get this is how slot machines work, but why? Right? What's the bigger reason why? Yeah. And he's just kind of like, I don't know. I just designed these machines to work, but I don't know what the underlying psychology is, you know? Uh, so I call up a psychologist. That's a good person to ask, right? I call up this guy whose name is uh, Thomas Zental, and he's done a bunch of studies on the psychology of gambling behavior. And this guy's old school. He's like 80-something years old. He's been doing it since the 60s. Um, and he explained that our... The reason we get sucked into this loop and why it drives this repeat behavior, uh, it goes back to evolution and finding food. So if you think of our ancestors, they had to find food every single day, right? That was like your life. Your life is, you know, have some kids, spread your genes, uh, find some food so you can survive and don't die in the meantime, right? <laughs> or try to avoid death for as My long as you can. My to-do list. Yeah, that's the to-do list. There's three things. <laughs> Uh, when you think of finding food, it is it has the exact same architecture as a slot machine. So you have an opportunity to find food, which will allow you to survive. But you don't know where the food is. It's unpredictable. So you go to point A. It's like, not there. So, okay, we'll go check point B. No, it's not there either. You go point C. Ding, 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 jackpot. You find food. You survive. Oh, my God, that was thrilling. And by the way, you got to repeat that every day for the rest of your life. So we essentially um, evolved to fall into the, to get really captured by unpredictable rewards. That captures not just human attention, but the attention of all animals far more than predictable rewards and drives repeat behaviors. Now, this might sound like it's still, there's some rationality tied in here, but it's counterintuitive. And you outlined this with several animal studies as well. And one of them was like on pigeons. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So this is the Zental guy. Um, he can he can turn pigeons into degenerate gamblers like that. So what he does is uh, he'll give pigeons two games. In the first game, they peck a light. Every other peck, they get food. The second game is like a slot machine. So about every fifth peck, they get food. But it's random, right? So you might go, you might peck five times and like on the fourth one, you get the food. But then the next series, it's on the second one you get the food. And um, he lets them choose between these two games. And what happens is that 97% uh, of the pigeons choose game two, the gambling game. And you also see this with rats. You see this in uh, monkeys. You basically see this in every animal we've studied it in. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. 
you pointed out they would get substantially more with the predictable button push. Yes. But it's that sense of scarcity and surprise reward. Like the brain is like hardwired to do that. Yeah. And one of the, so one of the most fascinating things, and this kind of gets into one of the bigger themes in the book and the questions that um, I'm still really grappling with the implications is that what this guy, so with the pigeons, they normally live in these relatively small cages. It's pretty sterile, kind of a boring life, right? But they're lab pigeons. But he will uh, occasionally put them in a really big cage that's designed to be like their life would be in the wild. So there's other pigeons in there, but they're also having to like go look for food and find it. They're having to build nests. They're having to do all these things they would have to do in the wild. And then he will put them back in the game and say, all right, pigeons choose. And they start to choose the predictable game, the one that gets them more food overall. So they make better decisions. Mm. So I ask him, why is that? And his theory, it goes back to this theory called the optimal stimulation model. And it basically states that all species need a certain amount of stimulation to uh, thrive. Mm. And if they don't get that level of stimulation, they go seeking it from somewhere else. So for the pigeons, they live in a cage, right? It's kind of a, it's very unnatural. So when you put them in, give them the option, they're going to seek stimulation for the, from the unpredictable reward game. And of course, then the guy goes, you know, when you think of humans, it's like, if, if, our, if we're not stimulated enough in our life, um, we go searching for stimulation from other places. We gamble, we do drugs, we eat too much, we do, we do all these behaviors that can be counterproductive in the long run. This is blowing my mind. This is blowing my mind. Dude, that's and a crazy it, one. It's so, it, but then again, it's like, it's so obvious and we don't realize that this is happening to us. So we're talking about a gap essentially in fulfillment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are several studies. I did a, a guest lecture for the neuroscience department at NYU. Mm-hmm. And it was along with my friend. She's been actually right here sitting in the seat, Dr. Wendy Suzuki. And she's done some fascinating work on how these get different environmental stimuli can impact our mental health, like exercise, for example, is like her big lane. But one of the studies that she shared with me was how even our kind of experience of fulfillment or connection or mental well-being can get passed down generationally in lab animals, for example. But when you expose, like, for example, the experiments on mice to enriching environments, suddenly they become much more well-adjusted. They start making better decisions and all these things. And it's like, this research you just shared is like bringing more color to this for me to make it make sense. Like we make better decisions, when when we're bombarded with this, the life that we live right now, it is comfortable, but also we're psychologically bombarded. Going back to when I said those those to-do lists is just like find food, move the species on, don't die. Very short to-do list. Pretty, you know, some stress there. Today, my to-do list is like 27 things, right? And it's, as soon as five things get cycled out, 10 more things get put on there, right? There's so much psychological stress that I think it's kind of like digging a hole in our psyche 
And then we're trying to fill it with all this other shit that doesn't really help us to adjust. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, when you just look at it from a context of what was life like as humans evolved, um, very different than the life that most people live now. So for example, we spend a lot less time outside. We're a lot less naturally physically active. And also our physical activity has changed to your point about the gym. It's like, yeah, you need that to replace your time. But when you think about how humans um, were physically active in the past, we were often having to do mental work as we uh, were physically active. Yeah. So think about think about foraging for food or hunting an animal. Like that is really cognitively taxing. You're outside, you're having to navigate the land, you're watching where you put your feet, you're also going, well, I can't get lost or I'm screwed. And you're like, you're tracking blood, you're and the, like tracking an animal is really hard work, right? And so you're doing all this psychological work mm -hmm. as well. And so I think that when you look at how our environments have changed, they've changed in a lot of ways that take a lot of um, stimulus off of us yeah. in a way, even though we have more stimulus in the sense of like, I have this to-do list of random stuff. We don't have like these 20 others that we would have had, right? Right, right. There's a mismatch again. Yeah. We, we're missing inputs. Right. That, you know, that we evolved with. We're talking hundreds of thousands of years in this kind of current model and versus like a couple of decades, yeah. if that. And so that's that can again present why we're experiencing so many outward symptoms of, you know, again, mental health issues, you know, um, physical health issues, the list goes on and on. One of the things I love about this book is that you look at the history of things, right? So you didn't just talk about slot mach machines. You went back to like, here's a guy who made these things what they are today. Yeah. Uh, I love that, you know, even with my, one of my recent books with Eat Smarter, when talking about a calorie, I went back to the origin. That's we talked awesome. about where did this thing come from, this, this, this term in our culture. It started off in physics. It wasn't nothing to do with nutrition. Mm -hmm. And it kind of parlayed its way into popular culture. And so find, learning this story, because if you could share a little bit of it, I don't want to give too much away, but slot machines were not the deal. Just like a couple of decades ago, it was like a thing for like the family to, to do while the real players are like at the tables. Yeah. And but, this was that was yeah. all the way up to about 1980. So they're in the corners and no one played them. So then the question is, okay, well, why did no one play slot machines? And the reason was because they were boring. <laughs> so they used to have, um, you know, the reels and there was only one row that you could win on. Mathematically, that didn't happen that often. So you'd spin a thing and there's, you know, you'd have to get all these symbols to line up, but that was only happening, you know, 5% of the time. So all species, if you do something and get nothing for it repeatedly, you'll stop doing that behavior pretty fast, right? So this guy, um, then this guy whose name is uh, Cy Red comes in and he's, uh, he's this guy who's in the gambling industry and he's very old school Vegas, right? He's a character. He's got the maroon suits. He's got the sunglasses he wears indoors, the bolo ties. And he makes this observation that uh, in the late seventies, his grandkids are playing Atari. And he goes, wow, that, that's really holding their attention for a long time, but it also doesn't make sense to him. And that's because you don't actually win anything real if you win Atari. It's like nothing, right? It's just like you get some pride and you move on. But he wonders if he can take some of the elements of that and apply them to slot machines. So that's what he does. He digitizes slot machines. So slot machines before used to be analog. They were literally like a machine um, where physical reels would spin. 
what he does is he turns them into a computer. And now you have a screen where the reels, quote unquote, appear on the screen. And this lets him solve for the boredom problem. This is the main thing. So now he can project multiple reels on a screen and you can bet on a bunch of different combinations. So you can bet, you can make 40 different wagers on a single game, basically. And what this does is it increases the probability that you'll win. Now, when you think about that, you're going, all right, well, now the casinos aren't going to make any money because let's say you're betting on 50 lines and they're more likely to win. So what he does is he goes, oh, well, we'll just decrease the amount you win on each line. So now you might win a few pennies on each line. So what this does is it means that now half of games will win something, but most of the time it's less than you bet. So you might bet a single dollar and quote unquote win 50 cents. Now, what this does is this seems irrational, but it's still exciting because he pairs it with graphics and sounds and all this amazing things happen when that happens. And in modern research, um, they'll do basically neuroscience research shows that we register these, what are called uh, losses disguised as wins as real wins and they compel repeat behavior. So you feel like you're getting something. And what it does is you're playing, but you're slowly losing your money over time, even though it's a really exciting act, losing money. Because you don't really realize it. You're like, oh no, but these good things are happening, right? Mm, it's so fascinating. And one of the biggest revelations was when you shared basically, it's there's a certain spot of this whole process is where the magic really happens. And it's as the reels are turning. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, this, uh, a gambling engineer basically told me, he goes, gambling is not when you know whether you've won or lost. Gambling is when the reels are turning. It is when the dice are rolling across the table. It is when the dealer is about to put down that card and you're going to find out if you got blackjack. This is when, um, anticipation peaks. That's what makes gambling excited. And it goes back to, uh, goes back to dopamine and different neurochemicals basically that are released during that sort of anticipation phase. Right. The anticipation phase. And we've been talking about this for years. Um, because again, dopamine gets this connection to things that it's, that it's not supposed to be connected to. It's really a part, a big part of the the seeking behavior. You know, it's not necessarily about the pleasure. We don't get addicted to that. It's potentially we can use it to our favor if we become aware of it. But a lot of times we fall into these loops and don't understand why. And so it's that feeling in that moment when the thing is about to happen is that that's so special. And part of that scarcity loop is being able to do it again and again and again. Can you talk a little bit more about that part? Yeah. So the the other um, thing this guy did to make slot machines um, more popular. So now when you play, you know that you're going to probably win at some point, but you don't know if your dollar bet's going to get you 25 cents, if it's going to get you 50 cents, if it's going to get you a dollar 50, if it's going to get you $150, right? So now each pull of the handle becomes more action packed. What he does to increase the speed of a behavior because as a general rule the faster you can repeat a behavior the more likely you are to repeat a behavior so he gets rid of the the handles on slot machines because those slow things down so he puts in spin buttons and when he puts in spin buttons um the rates of gambling basically double on slot machines and once this guy's done tinkering with all these um all these little changes he makes 
uh, slot machine gambling increases tenfold. And all of a sudden, slot machines go from being this little sideshow on the casino floor to taking up 85% of casino floors. And now people today spend more money on slot machines than they do on books, movies, and music combined. That is crazy, Pants. That's nuts. It's crazy. Yeah. And again, I don't think we think about it. Um, And as you mentioned, where you live, there's slot machines everywhere. I would imagine like restaurants, maybe gas stations. Restaurants, gas stations, grocery store, uh, airport. Where else am I missing? Bars. Yeah, like I'll go, I'll get grocery stores in the morning, you know, when like no one's there. It'll be 7 a.m. and people will be playing slot machines. Yeah, letting their food spoil. (laughs) It's crazy. Wow. All right, let's talk about how this connects to, you know, right now, uh, here in the United States, according to, you know, CDC, NIH, prior to pandemic-related shutdowns, we were somewhere in the ballpark of 42.5% of U.S. adults being clinically obese, and it's projected to be 50% by 2030. The latest numbers that have not come out post-pandemic as far as that's concerned yet, and I would imagine it's taking a mighty jump and getting there faster, mm-hmm. and not to mention if we compile overweight and obese somewhere in the ballpark of three-fourths of our citizens at this point. It's very it's very unusual, but when you understand the scarcity brain, it's, it makes complete sense because in some ways we evolved to overeat. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, well, it, food has always been at a premium. Food has always been scarce. It's always been hard to find for the vast majority of time. Um, and if you had the opportunity to eat it, that would give you a survival advantage. So we're unique in that we store a lot of fat and this is so we could travel long distances, so we could explore. It gave us a, it allowed us to survive. So if you think about it in the past, if you had every, you know, let's say every seventh day, you couldn't really find that much food. This meant that if you had the opportunity to overeat, you should do it because you know you're going to not have food at some point. We still have that ancient wiring in a time where we have 7-Elevens on the corner. We got grocery stores. We got Burger King. We got we got food everywhere, right? The average, uh, I think we throw out about a third of the food we produce in America. I like to say that, um, you know, getting in trouble with food, let's say if you're at a weight that you don't want to be at because you've eaten too much, I like to say that it's not necessarily your fault because you're kind of doing this thing that humans evolved to do. Um, but it is your problem to solve if you would like to reduce your weight, right? It's still going to take action um, you can't, you know, it's, it's kind of a thing you gotta, you gotta figure out for yourself. Um, yeah. Now add to this, the fact that we do have these ultra processed food manufacturers who are taking advantage even more of our biology, right? And it gets into that scarcity loop of the ability to repeat a behavior very easily. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the, I bet you can't eat just one <laughs> right, phenomenon. Totally. So I explained the scarcity loop. Now, as I'm reporting the book, um, I come across this quote from a, a person who uh, is a CEO or an exec at a snack food company. So we, snacking wasn't really a thing until about 1970. And um, what happened is that the food industry goes, all right, well, you know, people are eating three meals. They're probably not going to eat a ton more in each meal, but what we can do is we can create a new category of food and give them new opportunities to eat. So the food industry goes, we're going to create this new category called snacking. Now, if people have eaten, you got to be like, all right, well, what will people eat after they've already eaten, (laughs) right? (laughs) 
So this guy explains, if you want a snack food to take off, it has to have three V's. It's got to have value. It's got to have variety. It's got to have velocity. So what does that sound like? It sounds like the scarcity loop that I just explained, right? So it's got to be relatively cheap, uh, high calorie. It's got to have uh, variety, meaning there is a lot of flavor per bite, meaning there's a lot of different options. So um, you mentioned Pringles before we started recording. How many different Pringles are there? There's like 25 different Pringles. There's like sour cream and onion, there's barbecue, there's spicy barbecue, there's like, just keep going, right? Um, and that's gotta have velocity, meaning that it has to be easy to eat, meaning you can consume it faster. Yeah. Now, I think that velocity is the number one thing when it comes to food. So when uh, food companies process a food, turn a food into an ultra processed food, basically repeated steps of processing, that are um, done to increase flavors, increase all these things that make food delicious, people will tend to eat the food a lot faster. So there's a really great NIH study from uh, Kevin Hall, who I'm sure his name has come up on this podcast before. He's done a uh, really great piece of research where he took a group of people and for two weeks, he locks them in a lab, right? So for two weeks, he lets them, um, he gives them only food that is very minimally processed says, eat as much as you want. And they're weighing every single thing these people eat. Like it's extremely um, nitty gritty with the tracking. Then after that, for the next two weeks, he gives them a diet that is equivalent in um, macros and salt and things like that, except the food is ultra processed. It's sort of the ultra processed take on that. And he says, all right, eat as much as you want. Again, they're tracking every single thing. And what he finds is that when people are on the ultra processed diet, they end up eating about 500 calories more per day and they end up gaining weight. And the reason mainly comes down to the speed at which they ate the food. So when a food is ultra processed, it's super easy to eat. Think about getting a piece of, I have a um, guy who's quoted in the book, his name is Mike Roussel. He's a nutritionist. And he's like, yeah, my son ordered a pizza from Pizza Hut the other day. He's like, I had a slice. It's like it literally just like melts in your mouth and falls down the back of your mm. throat, right? Think about eating something like broccoli. Like it takes so long to eat. It's like crunchy. It's kind of a pain in the ass to eat broccoli. A better comparison might be think of eating potato chips versus a boiled potato, right? You're never going to sit down and eat a thousand calories in boiled potatoes. But people will sit down and eat a thousand calories in potato chips all the time because it got all these triggers that make you want to eat it. Also very quick to eat. Yeah. Wow. And of course, they're manufactured to be that way. You know, it's taking yeah. advantage of this hard wiring. One of those phenomenons is the vanishing caloric density. So it's like that melt in the mouth experience. So it kind of, in a way, because when you eat foods through our evolution, there's a certain feedback when you're biting into that food. We were just talking about this as well with gastrophysics and like a certain crunch, a certain experience. And through our evolution, this would be tied to a certain nutrient density as well. But now with the food, you get this crunch, but then it disappears. So there's like the feedback loop is interrupted. It's just like, did I just eat as much as I thought? Okay, next one. You know, it's just like, it's not, it, it, it's tricking our brains in a sense and our biology, not just our brains, because our brains are really, even though we can kind of hack it, it's very, very complicated. Like, it's been called the most complicated object in the known universe by Michio Kaku is like 
we just talked about gastrophysics, but astrophysics and like modern day Einstein. And our brains are, are very, very complicated, but there are certain things, certain buttons we can push. And you highlight this so well in the book that you can get in there and really manipulate what's happening. Now, with that being said, the fact that we evolved in conditions where there was a lack, there's scarcity, now that we have all of this abundance, that programming doesn't suddenly turn off. We're designed for a very different reality than the one that we find ourselves in. And so a lot of people are beating themselves up because it's difficult to adjust in this environment. What we're doing is really putting power into people's hands by us. Like, I think awareness can really help even what's happening with our brains when we can see the thing happening before it happens or while it's happening. Like, oh, this is that thing happening. This is that scarcity brain of mine that's doing this thing. So what are some of the, obviously, you know, you're kind of getting us a peek behind the scenes of a lot of what's happening. But what are some of the things that we can do about this to kind of take back control of what's happening internally? Yeah, um, I'll give you examples using food. Um, so with any behavior that falls in this scarcity loop, I think the first thing is to your point, becoming aware of it. Once you know how the machine works, then you have a you have a better probability of choosing not to mess with the machine if you don't want to, right? Mm. But just knowing how it works. It's, I had a, I have a good friend, uh, Trevor Cashy, who's a, who works in the field of uh, nutrition and other fields. Um, he said, you know, the dessert really tastes delicious until you realize the chef put monkey brains in it. And then it's not right. so delicious, is it? Mm-hmm. Um, so the second way is that you can change or remove any of the three parts of the loop and that will tend to reduce the behavior. So we'll, we'll use food as an, an example. You can take away or change the opportunity. So if you've got some food that you know once you have one, I think you alluded to that, once you pop, you can't stop or whatever, uh, don't keep it in the house. Like that's that's pretty simple. That removes that opportunity that you're going to go, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm on this great bender with my health. Things are great, blah, blah, blah. But then you, you know, you get stressed out or you get a shitty email from your boss and you go, yeah, I'm just going to have one Pringle. And then all of a sudden the 10 of them is gone. Um, number two, you can take away the unpredictable rewards. Uh, a lot of that comes down to, does everything that we eat have to taste like a party in our mouth? <laughs> right? Mm. No. So as part of this book, for example, um, I, and I can get into why, but I'll, I'll be quick here is that I travel into Bolivia to hang out with this tribe called the Chamane tribe and they have the healthiest hearts ever recorded by science. And, um, it all goes down. It goes back to what they eat. Basically their diet is they don't, they don't eat processed food. They eat food that has a single ingredient. Now I spend a week with them. I eat what they eat. And I'm going to tell you their food was not delicious. It was very boring. There's not a lot of salt. There's not a lot of flavor. And when something doesn't taste amazing in every single bite, like your likelihood of taking another bite diminishes. At the same time, if you're truly hungry, a food that doesn't have a ton of flavor will still be satisfying and still be good. Mm -hmm. So I think realizing that like not everything you eat needs to taste amazing. Like that seems relatively reasonable, right? And then um, third, quick repeatability. Eating foods that are less processed slows down the process of eating and leads you to take in fewer calories. Makes sense. Very simple. Yeah, it's simple. It's like, you know, eat 
eat foods that are mostly unprocessed that humans have been eating for thousands and thousands of years. And people will look at that and go, yeah, well, I already know that. But, well, okay, well, now you know why it works, yeah. right? And um, it absolutely does work. I mean, that's the foundation of um, human health to me. Yeah. I'm a big fan of just even shifting the ratio. You know, you mentioned that NIH study and being a diet that's just completely ultra processed foods, you're going, you're inherently going to eat more calories the same macronutrients the same. Mm -hmm. That was so fascinating. And also in this study, what happened was for, you know, just subconsciously folks ended up eating less protein in those ultra processed meals. They were just like weeding it out mm -hmm. and getting to more carbohydrate dominant things, which stimulates more appetite. It's just like your biology is cleverly finding a way for you to eat more of that stuff. Yeah. And so just shifting the ratio, you know, you don't have to go completely. If you're right now, the average American adult, according to the BMJ, 60% of our diet as an adult is ultra processed foods. What if we, instead of the 60, 40, the way that the house is winning, I guess, go 60, 40 whole foods, mm -hmm. you know, that is going to probably have some tremendous benefits for your health. And I think that once you start, once you start that and you get good feedback from doing that, I think it increases the probability that you'll continue with the behavior, maybe even shift the ratio to even better. And I think you're spot on right. that, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that people should only eat foods with one ingredient for the rest of their life. I don't want to live in a world where I don't have the option to occasionally have some Pringles. It's a delicious food. But the problem is, is when that is 60% of your diet, you start to see a lot of the problems that we face today. Um, you know, to me, like, the scale weight thing is irre irrelevant, but really the problem with um, being obese is that increases the likelihood that you will have certain chronic diseases, right? So people will say, just because you're obese doesn't mean you're going to be unhealthy. Well, of course not. But what it does mean is that it loads the dice in favor of disease. So it's like, do you want to roll the loaded dice or do you not want to roll the loaded dice? You know? Yeah. Yeah. We've, of course, articulated this. This is not about a vanity metric. It's, yeah. you know seven times higher risk of developing uh, endometrial cancer, uh, twice as high likelihood of prostate cancer and breast cancer, let alone dramatically higher incidence of heart disease and Alzheimer's and all the things. Like we've got all these stats, but because our culture in this, again, being taken advantage of our scarcity brain, it's just framing it like, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it's hard. Here's, you know, here's some more, here's another show. Here's another, you know, this or that. Like, just don't worry about that. You're going to be fine. Yeah. And it's all good. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. The human brain is the most powerful pharmacy in the universe. And I'm saying that because every single thought that we think creates correlating chemistry in our bodies. And that biochemistry is designed uniquely for you. It's beyond bioidentical hormones or bioidentical neurotransmitters. These are designed specifically for your own receptor sites. So what you're making within your own body based on your thoughts, your perception of reality is of the utmost importance. And obviously thoughts of stress and anxiety and worry and fear, these are gonna create cascades that make us feel a certain way. The same with more positive and affirmative feelings and thoughts of joy, of love, of connection. But all of our emotions matter. Now, the thing is, if we're talking about health and longevity, we wanna make sure that we're stacking conditions to have more positive, affirmative thoughts and buffer us from the stressful thoughts that we are inevitably going to have. 
Now our sleep hygiene, our movement practices, and also our nutrition are of the utmost importance in helping to modulate these things. And when it comes to managing stress, there is one particular story T that has been utilized for thousands of years that stands head and shoulders above the rest. A study published in Biomedical Research found that test subjects with a variety of health complaints, including anxiety and poor sleep quality, were given lion's mane medicinal mushroom or a placebo for four weeks to monitor their metabolic and psychological impact. The participants who utilized lion's mane had significantly reduced levels of anxiety and irritation than those in the placebo group. The researcher stated, quote, our results show that lion's mane intake has the possibility to reduce depression and anxiety, unquote. Not only that, scientists at the University of Malaya discovered that compounds in lion's mane are able to significantly improve the activity of a nerve growth factor in the brain. Nerve growth factor is essential in the regulation of growth, maintenance, proliferation, and survival of various brain cells. If we want to have a healthy brain and protect our brain cells, which we don't have the regenerative activity of brain cells like we do other cells in our bodies, we've got to take care of our brain cells. This is one of the few things ever discovered that has that protective capacity. For me and my family, we want to make sure that the medicinal mushrooms that we're utilizing, lion's mane, chaga, reishi, and the like, are all done via a dual extraction to make sure that we're getting these bioactive compounds in a more full fashion. So via a hot water extract and an alcohol extract, there's one company that's doing that and infusing these incredible medicinal mushrooms into things like organic coffee, organic hot cocoa. And I'm talking about the folks at Four Sigmatic. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash model and get 10% off storewide of all of their incredible medicinal mushroom elixirs, cocos, and their organic coffee blends as well. Today, I actually had the Lion's Mane and Chaga organic coffee blend. This is one of those things, of course, it puts you on 10, but it helps you to modulate and manage your energy. It's not one of those things where you get this jolt of energy and then it leaves you lagging later on. It's very steady, mild-mannered behavior, and also helping to really activate the cognitive function that we're looking at. We're talking about things like lion's mane medicinal mushroom. You can get 10% off store-wide plus more. They got some incredible packages that you've got to check out and specials over at Four Sigmatic dot com forward slash model go to f-o-u-r-s-i-g-m-a-t-i-c dot com forward slash model for 10% off store-wide and more and now back to the show can you talk about the miami study yes so this this one was really fascinating about how scarcity cues affect us so a scarcity cue is a piece of information that we encounter in the environment that suggests that Things that we need to survive um, are scarce or all is not right with the world, basically. So what these scientists did is they um, had this table where they had a bowl of low calorie M&Ms and high calorie M&Ms. And they would let, you know, students choose whichever they wanted. And when students received a scarcity cue, which was like news of a war that could put, you know, a ration on food or something like that, um, people were to, people chose... <laughs> the high calorie M&Ms and they ate twice as many of them compared to if they didn't receive that scarcity cue. So the sort of conclusion from the researchers was that, you know, when we think the things we need are going to be scarce, we tend to react by eating food. And that makes sense from a historical perspective. It's like, if you think that all of a sudden there's gonna be a run on food, well, we've got built-in refrigerators on our frame in the form of fat. It's like, just start 
just to start eating food. And you see that among all animals too. Yeah, yeah. We we have this title for it, stress eating. Yeah, that's totally. right. But also on the other side, you can also eat stress as well. You know, some of these foods are contributing to the stress load in our systems as well. So it's just like this giant feedback loop there too. And you pointed this out too in the book, like we get a little bit of a hit, like a you know, uh, serotonin, for example, when we go for some, you know, some carb rich foods, like go, snacking on those M&Ms, it's not, the fat and the carb combination is really special for our brains. It really likes that a lot. And we would have done this. You shared also, like if, if our ancestors were to happen upon, you know, a, a bush of berries of some sort, there are tribes even today, for example, that might come across a food source and they will eat so much that it would make them sick, mm -hmm. but then they'll keep eating. Talk about that. Yeah, so when I was researching that tribe that I mentioned, the Chimane tribe, I talked to a guy whose name is Michael Gervin. Great guy, fascinating guy. And he's researched, spent time with all these different sort of hunter-gatherer, horticulturist tribes. And he was with the Aceh in Paraguay, I believe they are. And he's like, we're hanging out. They come upon this bush of uh, oranges, basically. And oranges are a delicacy because they're more calorie dense than what they would normally find. He's like, everyone stopped, sat down, and they ate more oranges than I'd ever seen anyone eat in their life. They ate so many that they got sick, threw up, they took a two minute break and kept on eating oranges. Mm. <laughs> because in that context of their life, I mean, they're, they're small people. It makes sense to onboard some fat when you have the opportunity by, eat, by overeating. It's bananas. Yeah. I mean, I live in Las Vegas. You go to a buffet. I, I see the same damn thing. It just happens yeah. to be, you know, Taurus. <laughs> right, right. Now, they aren't literally getting sick and coming back to the buffet, but you see people walking out of there going, oh, my God, I'm so uncomfortably full. Right? Yeah. Same behavior. Why do we do that? It's just like, well, we know why we do it, but it's just like certain food experiences, like I'm never going to eat again. Yeah. So I need to get as much of this as Thanksgiving, you know, like I'm yeah. never, Thanksgiving's never going to happen for me again. I cannot possibly have stuffing in Turkey again in my life. Let me eat as much as I can. And I think too, look at all the options of things we have to eat. So for most of the time, people were eating, you know, a few different things were on the menu every day. There wasn't a ton of options out there. Now we have restaurants where there's a giant menu and you've got the appetizer that has a few different things in it. You've got an entree that has a few different things and you can have dessert. So when people have more different options of things to eat, they will eat more different things to eat, basically. This is it's called the buffet effect. So you put someone in a buffet and they'll tend to overeat because there's so many different things to try, flavors to test out, much like a slot machine. Is this one gonna be the winner? Is this the winner on the buffet for me, right? <laughs> Let's talk about how we use these things for, in, in particular today, you know, we've got the golden age of television. There's so much, you know, social media, there's infinite, infinite amounts of, of things to get lost in. Let's talk about the escape aspect. Mm, yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of the behaviors that we do over and over and over, eventually to our detriment, especially if we're like, I don't know why I'm doing this but I can't stop. It's because it gives us a short-term relief from some underlying thing. It could be life stress. It's some, you know, some problem we have in our life. So a good um, stat, and I didn't, I don't think I put this one in the book, is that 90% of phone pickups are not because of a external cue, meaning a notification 
or something like that. They're because of an internal cue of something happening inside us. I right? just check. We're stressed. We're bored. We're whatever. You know, it's like you, you stand in a grocery store line. People can't stand in a line for more than two seconds without being like, what do I do with myself? And pull out there. Or an elevator. An elevator. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that a lot of these behaviors um, have an escape element. And this is, uh, I think this gets translated at the extreme end into addiction, where addiction to me, you know, there's a lot of theories behind it. For a while in the US, we thought it was, um, you know, you were a bad person if you were an addict. It's a moral failing. Then we realized, well, that's dumb. Um, <laughs> and the argument now is that it's a brain disease. So, you know, it's some chemical thing happening inside the brain that, you know, the person doesn't really have any agency over. As I was researching this book, I definitely don't think addicts are bad people at all. Um, but I don't necessarily think brain disease is a great um, is a great model for addiction. I think what tends to happen is that people take a, um, they do something that provides them relief and it works for them for a long time, but eventually it starts to tip and it starts to contribute to long-term problems. Yet that behavior still solves your problems in the short term. It's still a short-term relief. And by redoing and redoing and redoing that cycle, you find yourself in a pickle. And it's usually an escape from some underlying problem. We're, we're very crafty yeah. people, you know. That's what we're, we're doing, you know, with all this stuff. We're just trying to find some solace. We're seeking comfort. We're trying to, you know, if, if stuff is too heavy or even not even that heavy, we just become acclimated to escape. Yeah. Right? And that's, it's great. It, what I also lo love about your, your work as well is like, we're not villainizing any of this stuff. It's awesome to escape into a Tom Cruise movie. Totally. I don't want to do that shit, you know, but also it's pretty awesome to watch. And same thing with our different food experiences. Like knowing that, you know, Pizza Hut is a thing. You're like, that's giving me some joy, you know, in, in my childhood I haven't had in a while. Actually, there was a Pizza Hut buffet oh, in my I've, neighborhood. I've been to one of those. All right. So... <laughs> First of all, it's Pizza Hut, and they had those cool glasses that just look, soda looks better in those glasses. Oh, yeah. And, uh, it tastes better, and it, they had a buffet, right? Yeah. So me and my little brother, we like walk into the comic book store and like, you know, whatever it was, $7.99 or some whatever, and we could just go crazy, mm -hmm. you know, him and I. Two little kids, I was like 12 or something, and he was like, you know, eight, mm -hmm. and we were going ham. At, mm -hmm. at Pizza Hut. Having those things exist, that's not the problem. You know, um, we're going to keep creating. We're going to keep finding ways to distract ourselves, to pleasure ourselves through food, through these kind of external mediums. But I think what's lost in all of this is that inherent desire for fulfillment, for connection, for wanting to feel like we matter, significance. And so I think that's a lot of what's getting fill becoming filler. Right. And so you mentioned too this mismatch with our short to do list. And now we've got all these to do lists. But is that really meeting, you know, again, what our genes are expecting from us from all this time? We live in such a new reality yeah. that we're trying to catch up, but it's virtually impossible because things are not slowing down. Yeah. And, and so I'm, my question to dig deeper into this. You know, we looked at, okay, some things to kind of break this scarcity loop, ad addressing some of these things. But what about fulfillment? Like, what about like focusing on ourselves and like real happiness that doesn't require any of these things? Yeah, this is a, this is a good question. So as part of the book, I 
I've spent about a week with these uh, guys who are Benedictine monks in the mountains of New Mexico. And what's fascinating about these people is that, you know, we live in a world where there's a million different things that we're told we need to do to be happy, right? And there's all this research, like right now, the popular thing is like, you must have a bunch of friends. You must be social. And it's like, yeah, obviously it's good to be social, but, um, or, you know, you must meditate or you must gratitude journal and stuff like that. And this is coming out of universities. And what's interesting about these uh, monks is their life is pretty hard. They wake up at 3 a.m. every morning to go pray. They go pray in the chapel seven different times a day. Um, they don't eat a ton. They're told to like not overeat. Uh, they have to do physical labor for four hours every day. And by the way, they can't talk for like most of the day, right? So it's not like they're super, super social. And when you look at research on them though, they tend to be happier than the average person on average. So they're doing all these things that we might look at and go, well, wow, that would, that would make a person unhappy, right? But they're happy. And so the question is why? And I think to me, it comes down to, we need a certain level of effort in our life, which these people are getting through physical labor. They do every single day. Yes, we need connection, which they have, but we also need time to be alone and time in solitude to know about ourselves. So I had a separate research on, a, on the last book, The Comfort Crisis, talked to me about solitude. And he basically said like, look, you obviously need a social network, but if you can't be alone, that's a sign that like something good is not going on, right? When people want to find themselves, um, to understand more about themselves, they often need to have these stints of solitude. And this is in religious texts going back thousands of years, right? Um, and then I think most important with these um, guys I met with is that they're not obsessed with themselves. They have a sort of higher purpose. So everything they do is for this higher thing, right? And so for them, it's God. Um, do I think that it needs to be God for everyone? No. Do I think that realizing that maybe you're not the center of the damn universe is probably good for a human? Yes, <laughs> right? And so how is that going to get expressed? And how? what can you do um, to sort of do the next right thing and um, give effort to a cause that's maybe greater than yourself. I think that ultimately is a big driver of fulfillment and a long and happy life. And one of the researchers who I talked to in this process said, you know, one correlation that I see between people who live a long life and live a happy life is that they do a lot of volunteer work. They spend a lot of time helping others. They do all these things that get out of themselves. Um, even if they're not necessarily checking all these other boxes that we've been told you absolutely must do to be happy. Yeah. Yeah. And what you just shared, all of these things are firm. There's so much data on this, you know, and, and, and increasing our lifespan and our health span as well. But the question is, are we doing it right? So we've got effort. Are we actually putting forth effort? Like, it, it's important for our sense of well-being to do that. If we're not doing that, we're going to feel shit. But we can condition ourselves to be more comfortable in the lack of effort, you know, which is, again, this strange thing. A connection we need. But this one really jumped out at me. We need solitude. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned this earlier, like not being able to just be bored. You know, both of us, like we remember a time when we didn't have the cell phones, like, we just, we just were with ourselves, you know, we just, we just, can you imagine just thinking like we, there's so much time that I spent 
with myself, just in my own mind and contemplating, but also what's happening too with that freedom is processing. You know, data is getting processed. We're looking at different angles, perspectives, and having time to just be. You know, today there's always something, but so much of it is manufactured. You know, there was a time when we could just leave our house and just like, we'll be back when we're back. Like you can't talk in the in the meantime, you know? And now it's like people have 24 seven access to you if you allow it. Yeah. And so part of this is, and I'm, I'm gonna advocate for that for all of us, because as you just mentioned, not being able to be with oneself, this is a new thing as well. That's a new thing. Totally. You know, and it's ma it's manufactured by the culture. Yes, we need each other, but we also need to know who we are. We need to spend time with ourselves. We live with ourselves, but we don't fucking know ourselves at all today. You know, we're just kind of like, we think we're just moving around, just being, being controlled by the environment. Mm. There's so, if we're talking about a vast universe and we're talking about infinite information, it's all within you. There's so much within you to explore. But you can't do that if you don't have time to just be, yeah. you know. So I would advocate for people to just put that at least on your like midterm goals to like just have maybe 20 minutes a day to just do nothing. Yeah. Like put everything. You don't have to meditate per se, but just like put everything to the side, turn off your notifications, just be. Yeah. And I love this too. For me, I do this on a walk. I don't bring my phone. I just go for a walk. Yeah. And that's helped like so much of what people have heard on this show. And it's it's come through that experience of just being by myself, walking, processing things, thinking about things through different angles. I didn't per I didn't consciously do that. It just started happening. You know, and yeah. problems get solved, ideas, all these things because I have time to just be. So in the in the comfort crisis, um I spent a month up in the Arctic. We were on this caribou hunt and um so we'd sit on these hills because hunting caribou, they're coming um, north to south, summering to wintering grounds, but none of the caribou were coming through, right? Like they're just not coming through. So I didn't have my cell phone. I didn't have a book. I didn't have a magazine, no TV, none of that, right? So I'd sit on these hills for like hours and hours and hours with nothing to do. So I find myself bored again, right? So what did I do to relieve my boredom? One point we read all the labels on our nutrition food, on our food, right? So we're like, oh, Cliff Bar, yeah, 250 calories, nine grams of protein, whatever. But oh, made by a guy named Cliff. Then you're looking at the tags on your gear. Then you're like coming up with Christmas shopping lists for the next 15 years. Then you're, <laughs> but then I wrote some of the book that I wrote, right? I wrote all these different ideas. And so I'm having all these like really interesting thoughts. Mm. Um, so when you think about boredom, Boredom is neither good nor bad, but what boredom does, it's boredom is an evolutionary discomfort that basically tells you whatever you're doing with your time right now, the return on your time invested has worn thin. So if you think about it's a million years ago and you and I are hunting for our tribe, no animals are coming through, boredom kicks on and it tells us go do something else. Now in the past, that something else was often productive. So you and me, we go, all right, well, We've been sitting here for a while. The sun was there. Now it's there. Uh, let's go pick some potatoes. Let's go find some berries. So boredom often used to push us into something that was productive in mm -hmm. the past. Yeah. But now we live in a world where anytime we feel that evolutionary discomfort of boredom, we have easy effortless escapes from it, right? We can pull out our phone. We can turn on a TV. We can go behind the computer. We can do X, Y. There's a million different things we can do. 
And um, I do think that when you look at, to your point about coming up with ideas on walks, when you look at creatives, boredom in a lot of studies does seem to enhance creativity simply because people's attention is often wandering. And when it's often wandering, it's gonna wander into some interesting areas. If you have your phone on you, right when your mind starts to wander, you immediately pull out that phone. And that kill, you're seeing the same shit that everyone else is seeing. No one ever came up with a good idea watching, you know, the, the video that a million other people have watched on Instagram. Like it just never happened. Usually it has to happen in this separate space that is removed. And when you look at how much time we spend on media today, it's anywhere from 12 to 13 hours on digital media. I mean, that's totally brand new for us and our minds. So one of the things I talk about in the comfort crisis is that there's so much focus on spending less time on your phone. But what tends to happen is that, you know, people will take an hour off their phone screen time. And once they do that, they'll go, oh, well, now I'm kind of bored. What do I do with my time? And they'll watch Netflix, Mm -hmm. right? Now that's the same damn thing. The brain doesn't know the difference. So I advocate for more boredom is a good way to frame that in the context of today. And I do think it's absolutely powerful to your experience for coming up with ideas, for thinking differently, for even just having a time to sort of chill from how fast paced life is today. Right, right. And it's all, it's so good for you just for processing stress and all the things. And you just mentioned, you know, because an argument might come up when watching whatever, you know, somebody else's video, a million views, good idea. Yeah, you can have an idea, but it's usually going to be regurgitation. Right. right. It'll be a take on that. or Versus, and you, you alluded to this. So some researchers at Stanford found that simply going for a walk and the study was like 10 to 15 minute walk increased their objective creativity, what they were putting them through by like 60%, but it was a certain flavor of it. It was something called divergent thinking, mm-hmm. right? So like looking at things from these different unique angles, it's just like, we have that. We all have it in us to be creators and creative and to solve our most pressing issues. But if you don't have time, you're not gonna find the answer that you already have. Yeah, totally. Man, this has been fantastic. And I highly, highly encourage everybody to grab a copy. Scarcity Brain is available right now everywhere that books are sold. Of course, support your local bookstores, jump on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all that good stuff. Is there anywhere else that people can connect with you and get more information? Yeah, I got a website, eastermichael.com. And I have a newsletter I send out three times a week that talks about a lot of the stuff we've been talking about today. So if you're, uh, yeah, if you're into this show, you'd probably be into that too. It's uh, We actually do audio readings of it too, so. That's cool, yeah, that's man. cool. Listen, again, I love books that provide, it's not just, it's not just information, but it's like profound knowledge. It's like something that changes the way you view life. And there are quite a few moments of that reading Scarcity Brain. So just thank you so much for taking the time and energy and putting it together for us, man. Right it's really on. awesome. Well, I really appreciate you having me on. This is a fun conversation. I enjoyed it. Awesome. And we don't have any bias towards Easter holidays, except <laughs> you get free pancakes, apparently. Yeah, I made that up. <laughs> I tell everyone that. Everyone goes, what's it like being these? Well, I get free pancakes and I hop on Easter Sunday. So now the <laughs> secret's out. I've just revealed it. If I've conned you, I'm sorry. <laughs> My guy, again, thank you so much for your time and energy. And this is fascinating stuff. Can't wait to see what you do next. But right now, everybody get a copy of Scarcity Brain, wherever books are sold. Michael Easter, everybody. Many thanks, man. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. Effort, connection, solitude and contribution. 
These are four pillars that can provide so much more health, happiness, and success, especially in our world today. But the question is, are we doing them? Are we utilizing these very powerful pillars? I truly hope that you got a lot of value out of this conversation. If you did, please share this out with your friends and family. Of course, you can send this directly from the podcast app that you were listening on. And of course, you can take a screenshot of the episode, post it on your social, on your Instagram story. You could tag me, I'm at Sean Model, and tag Michael Easter as well. Share the love, let more people know about this incredible information. We've got some epic guests and powerful masterclasses coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.